and lies. Truth and lies. Our lives, our relationships are filled with both. We're often told it's easier to tell, to believe the lie, than it is to face the truth. Sometimes we even convince ourselves we're doing the other person a favor by lying to them. After all, we say, the real truth would be too hard to handle. We can become so good at lying, in fact, even to ourselves, that we forget. We don't know what is true anymore. And yet, even though we debate, even though we wrestle over what's true, instinctively, we all recognize falsehoods exist. Lying is prevalent. Not everything we are told, witness, or believe is accurate. Truth and lies. Distinguishing between truth and lies in many ways is one of the purposes of Peter's second letter to the church. Peter, if you were with us, reminded us, began by reminding us of what is true. He reminded us that who we are, what we are as the church, is not about what we accomplish. It's first about what Jesus has done through the gift of grace and what Jesus continues to do through his divine nature, Peter writes, empowering and transforming us from within. We grow in faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, godliness, love, as we submit and serve according to the word and the spirit revealed in Jesus Christ. Peter, last week, then made the case for the validity of the faith we have been given, the authenticity and reliability of the Bible and its authors. And in so doing, he encouraged us to live according to, out of, the truth of the story we have been given, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we turn back to his second letter, to the second part of this letter, chapter 2, Peter will now contrast a life lived in truth with a warning about a life based on lies. I invite you to turn to page 853 in the Pew Bible or your own Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. We are not going to read all 22 verses, but I want you to keep your Bible open after we've finished reading. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Let us hear the word of the Lord. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways, and they will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the, the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature 
and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Peter gives us no commands here. Peter gives us no admonitions, no imperatives. Keep those Bibles open. Don't close them because I'm going to keep referring back. Peter just gives us truth and lies. He offers us, in just the verses that we've read, and if you keep reading, a terrifying description of the truth and the consequences of false teaching and false living. If we're a little put off, and some of us who may not be well-versed in our Bibles, this is kind of one of those scriptures where you go, this is why I don't read the Bible. If we're a little put off by Peter's forceful language, it's helpful to remember he writes to us as a pastor, as a shepherd, trying to protect the flock from dangers intent on their destruction. And what I want to make clear from the outset, this is so important to me, is while Peter's words here are directed at specific false teachers in his day, the point of this passage is not for us to walk away with a list of villains, the names and faces of bad people in the church. You will not be receiving any most wanted posters as you leave today. Our struggle, as the scriptures remind us, again and again, is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers. The spiritual forces in opposition to God that prey upon our flesh and blood. In other words, the identifying characteristics of false teaching we are about to review, thanks to Peter, are tendencies, leanings, latent in each and every one of us. We can all be tempted to go astray, to get it wrong. We are all susceptible to error, to consciously or unconsciously, to intentionally or unintentionally misrepresenting Jesus and his kingdom. Peter's broader point here is not to name names or single out individuals, but to caution the whole community to equip us to recognize the earmarks of false teaching, incorrect, flawed, skewed, or misrepresentative expressions of the gospel. So, with this important clarification in view, what are the warning signs of false teaching when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? To sort of encapsulate what Peter has here, there's a couple of things I want to highlight that Peter writes about. First, false teaching is deceptive. False teaching is deceptive. If you ever thought about it, the danger of deception is that we don't realize we're being tricked or fooled, right? As the saying goes, even a broken clock is correct twice a day. False teaching is deceptive, Peter writes, because rarely what is being taught contains no truth at all. The content is never just a pack of lies. Peter writes about false teaching being secretly introduced. In other words, there's always a hint of truth in what is being presented. Peter writes about stories that are made up, fabricated stories in other translations. He's talking about the truth being twisted. How can we spot deception? How can we recognize the truth of the gospel when it's being twisted? There are a couple of three key ways that we need to be mindful of. First, we need to be wary of subtraction from the gospel. When a truth is twisted into a half-truth. And my examples are not ironclad, but they're food for thought for each of my examples. So be wary of subtraction, of turning a truth into a half-truth. So for example, we can present the gospel like this. If you embrace Jesus, God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
That's true, but what's missing? What's, it's a half-truth. Yes, embrace Jesus. God has a wonderful plan for your life, but the whole truth is that includes repenting, turning away from your old life and dying to yourself. It's not the whole gospel. It's not the whole truth if we miss that part. We're subtracting from it. We need to pay attention when the gospel is added to, when things are added to the gospel. Again, not the best example, but it works. Sometimes we may have been told in the diversity of the body, baptism is a sign of our salvation in Christ. But if you haven't spoken in tongues, you haven't been truly baptized, and you haven't therefore been truly saved by Jesus. The implication of that is very, very subtle. That Jesus alone is not enough, there also has to be this that comes with it. Be wary of subtraction, be wary of addition. And, and the third one is just notice when aspects of the gospel message are changed or ignored altogether. For example, God helps those who help themselves. Can anyone give me the scripture reference for that? It's correct, it's from the book of Benjamin Franklin, that's right. <laughs> God helps those who help themselves. If you actually read this book, it's quite the opposite, actually. God helps those who can't help themselves. The, 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 this version of the gospel, God helps those who help themselves, is not the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of self-reliance. False teaching is deceptive. False teaching, P Peter goes on, is rooted in greed, False teaching is rooted in greed. Peter says the primary motive behind false teaching you will always find is self-centered, not God-centered. That's why Peter describes false teaching as promoting arrogance and boasting. You see, when the gospel becomes about looking out for number one, we despise authority, as Peter writes. We despise authority because we recognize no other authority than the power of our own wants, desires, and interests. We'll often hear the word when we talk about false teaching in the church, this churchy word heresy. Peter actually uses it here. We use, we, Peter talks about heresy. The word heresy implies somebody who makes a preferential choice, somebody who chooses something that isn't true based on their preference for what they want to be true. Hear that again. Heresy is when someone chooses something that isn't true based on their preference for what they want to be true. The pastor, William Barclay, wrote it, said it like this. A heretic is a man who believes what he wishes to believe instead of accepting the truth of God which he must believe. We often say, maybe you've said it, people, everyone, has a right to their own beliefs. Everyone has a right to their own beliefs. But that's not the whole truth. We don't have a right to stand against what God has revealed. See, false teaching is deceptive. False teaching is primarily rooted in greed. And part of why it works is false teaching, as Peter implores us, is seductive. Peter writes that false teaching is careless. It's careless because it tells us to live carefree. Why do lies work? Why, are, why do we believe lies? Lies work. We believe them because they tickle. They tempt us with easy answers and quick solutions. 
We live in a world where spirituality is on the rise today. Even in the advent of atheism, I still find that spirituality as a whole is on the rise. People, everybody wants some kind of spiritual experience to feel, to sense, to interact with the divine. As long as God, or whatever we conceive God to be, makes us feel better and makes no demands upon us. See, false teaching is seductive because false teaching, Peter cautions, appeals to our instincts. It speaks to our lusts. It encourages us, as Peter describes it later on in this chapter, if you have that Bible open, he describes it as, it describes us as carousing in the daylight. We, encourages us to revel in pleasures with our eyes full of adultery to where we live like unreasoning animals, letting our wild side reign as we do what feels good instead of worrying about doing what is right. And yet, Peter will end kind of talking about the warning signs, the identifying markers, that the fruit of false teaching, at the end of the day, is exploitation and slavery. The fruit of false teaching is exploitation and slavery. See, first, when the gospel becomes what's in it for me, my own personal profit, I glory in the privileges of being a Christian while I deny those benefits to others. For example, I pride myself on being forgiven in Christ, and yet I insist on being unforgiving toward others. I champion grace in the face of my own shortcomings and flaws, even as I still sit in judgment and deny grace to those who are no less broken than I am. I declare the Lord's favor as I experience material or financial wealth, and yet all the while ignore my responsibility to be my brother or sister's keeper. Peter expresses it this way. False teaching exploits others. It takes harmful advantage of the suffering and the brokenness of others for the sake of our own gain. But if you read this book, if you listen to Jesus, the gospel is not about taking advantage of others. It's not about doing harm. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about sacrificing for the sake of others, being willing to endure harm and persecution so that others might be saved. But the fruit of false teaching isn't just the exploitation of others. Peter goes on to say the fruit of false teaching is it actually enslaves those who swallow the lies it professes to be true. Freshwater springs feeding a river. If you picture that, freshwater springs feeding a river, that's a welcome sight to a thirsty traveler, right? But Peter says false teaching is like a spring without water. While it gives the appearance of substance, the promise of salvation, false teaching, like an empty soda machine on a hot day, has nothing satisfying to offer. And false teaching, Peter goes on, pushes, doesn't just leave you unsatisfied, it leads you to ruin. In Israel, during a drought, sometimes hazy clouds appear, and they would seem to indicate relief, rain, that would be given to a parched land, when actually often those hazy clouds are actually sing signaling the onset of more dry weather. Peter refers to this image when, when going further and saying that false teaching doesn't just overpromise and underdeliver, it takes away more than it gives. The allurement of false teaching is freedom, but in the end, it results in greater bondage. We, we use the word freedom a lot. We are, live in a country where we're, we're very much about freedom. 
But we need to temper how we often talk about freedom with how God talks about freedom. And if we look at how God talks about freedom, reveals to us what freedom is in Christ, we understand that freedom is complicated. True freedom isn't cheap. It doesn't come easy. What we find out is what we often proclaim as freedom in our lives generally turns out to be slavery in the end. So for example, I can say, hey, you know what? I am free to eat and drink whatever I want, whenever I want. And it's the Super Bowl today, and I am going to do just that. (laughs) But if what I eat impacts my health, my ability to live a full and long life, is this freedom? There's a growing cry more and more, and I'm speaking to all ages, but specifically to the younger people in this room, because this seems to be sort of one of the rallying cries of your generation. Maybe not for you, but it seems to be more and more rising up. There's a growing cry for us to embrace our sexual freedom. I am free in my sexuality, my sexual behavior, my sexual practices. It's nobody's business. And I want to say something first that begs another teaching or sermon series. We need to start teaching and talking about, again, sex in the church, and we need to start talking about the fact that sex is good. We've, had a, we've got a rep of saying sex is bad. It can't be all that bad, otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> Just saying. Sex is good. Sex is good, just like fire is good. Fire. Think about it. Fire gives us the freedom to be warm. Fire gives us the freedom to have light. Fire gives us the freedom to cook food. But if I so enjoy fire and the freedom it gives me that I decide to start a fire in the middle of the room rather than in a fireplace, should I be surprised if I burn the house down? Or at the very least, if I get burned in the process? And is that freedom? Peter warns us, specifically says, we become enslaved to what has mastered us. You see, the more you do as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. Freedom not rightly understood, freedom apart from submission to Jesus is only the freedom to destroy ourselves. Hence the inevitable consequences that Peter invokes in this second chapter when he points to the swift destruction we bring upon ourselves, the condemnation that hangs over us. Maybe maybe that's the most succinct way to recognize false teaching is when Peter says that whenever what is being taught denies the sovereign Lord who bought us. That's maybe if you want just one way to, to identify it. We are dealing with a lie in all of its forms when Jesus is in some way being diminished. What we are hearing obscures or ignores the prominence and significance of Jesus in our lives and in this world, if it contradicts or lessens or negates his work in us and for us, it is false. Because to deny Jesus in any way is to deny the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. It is to deny our total dependency upon what Jesus continues to do for us. If we would recognize the lie we must continually remind ourselves of the truth. The truth. The truth of Jesus' incarnation. The truth of Jesus' life. That God is with us and for us. The truth that Jesus lived a perfect life. 
The lie that we often say in our mistakes and our foibles and in our sin, well, we're only human. That's a lie. Jesus lived a perfect life so we would know the truth. We look and learn from Jesus for what it truly means to be human. We don't know what it means to be human. We're not only human. We're, We're putting a bad rap on what God has created. Jesus lives a perfect life so in him we see this is what it means to be truly human as God created humanity to be. We need to remember the truth of Jesus' incarnation, his life, that apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we are nothing. We need to remember the truth of Jesus' sacrifice, his death. And in remembering that truth, it doesn't matter who started it. Guys, when we talk about sin, when we talk about the problem, we sound like a bunch of children when we all want to say, well, they started it first, or they're more at fault than I am. When we start talking us and them, we're denying the reality that we all have blood on our hands. That we're all guilty, not just individually, but by association. If you're part of the human race, you're guilty by association. Get over it. My son still has in his craw, and I think I've brought this before, one of the first things he wants to do when he gets to heaven is he wants to sit down with Adam and Eve and read them the what for. (laughs) It doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter. We're all guilty with blood on our hands and we need to remember the truth of Jesus' sacrifice, his death, that Jesus paid the price. Jesus covered the debt for all our sin because we can't clean it up. We can't fix it. We can't pay it back. We can't make up for what we contribute individually and collectively to the brokenness of our world. We need to remember the truth of Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus conquered death. The net result of all this chaos and mess, Jesus conquered. The one consequence, we may all argue about who's more at fault, but the one consequence we all can't avoid that we can all agree on is we die. And Jesus built a bridge beyond death for us to what we long for, to what we were created for, eternal life in communion with God. We need to remember Jesus' life, his incarnation, his sacrifice, his death. We need to remember his resurrection And we need to remember the truth of Jesus' reign. Because Jesus has done all this, because only Jesus could, because Jesus carries us home, Jesus is Lord. No other God, no other man is worthy of our devotion and our worship. Beloved, there is no truth, in other words, apart from Jesus Christ. Really let that sink in. There is no truth apart from Jesus Christ. And if we hear that, hear again the breaking down of a lie. The gospel, much to the disagreement with seemingly popular opinion right now, the gospel is not about self-help. We can help ourselves. That's the point. We can't help ourselves in terms of controlling ourselves. We can't help ourselves in getting out of the holes we often put ourselves in. Apart from God's help, there is no gospel. There is no good news. If we misunderstand this, if we misunderstand the gospel, we misrepresent the good news to others. If how we act in the name of Jesus exploits, abuses, or belittles others, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are bearing false witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we live for ourselves, if we are our own boss, if we are our own authority, we aren't following the master, the sovereign Lord who bought us. We're not following the master. We're seeking to master others in order to promote ourselves. 
Now, in the midst of all this, there's something for me that's very reassuring. That Peter tells us that this battle between truth and lies has been going on since the very beginning. From a false word about a piece of fruit in the garden to a big fat lie about a golden calf in the wilderness to the dishonesty of offering sacrifices in the temple without extending mercy in the neighborhood, erroneous teaching and deceptive practices have been a perennial challenge for the community of faith. And for Peter, the best protection against falling victim to a false gospel is being prepared and growing in the knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And I'm going to repeat something I said last week, but I figure if Peter repeats himself, I can too. Once again, this reason is why God gives us his word, the Bible. This is the reason why God calls us to worship, calls us to prayer, gathers us in community. And again, hear this again, probably one of the biggest lies being taught today. You cannot be a follower of Jesus apart from the church. You cannot. And that doesn't mean you have to be a part of a building, but you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You will find no biblical support for this. It is a dangerous lie that we are telling. Because God is the one who gathers us in community, and he does it. He gives us his word. He calls us to prayer and worship, gives us the sacraments as a way of us being protected, forearmed against the snares of flawed teaching. You see, it's through these practices, the repetition that the Spirit shapes, refines, and matures us into who we are called to be. You need to hear this. It's, it's about the practices. It's about the, the repetition. We picked up on this last week. What Peter's pointing us to is spiritual discernment, right? Spiritual discernment and spiritual sensitivity. But here's the thing. Spiritual discernment doesn't come through information. It's not about content. In many ways, and you may go, well, just stop preaching now. Maybe I should. It's, there's nothing I'm telling you this morning that you haven't heard before. There's nothing I'm telling you you haven't heard before. There's no one here who can say, well, I don't really know what to do. We all know what to do. We all just don't do it. It's not about the content. Spiritual sensitivity also doesn't develop through your feelings. It's not about being in the mood or being fed. It matters if you're in the mood or if you're fed, but it does. you understand something? That even when you're not in the mood and when you're not being fed, the spirit is still working. Do you think that because you're not in the mood or because you're not being fed, the spirit can't still work upon you? Transform you? Shape you? Who, who has the power in that situation? You or the spirit? We aren't always feeling it. We aren't always hungry. We grow in our discernment and our sensitivity, yes, through content, through our feelings, but through full body contact. We grow in our discernment and our sensitivity by participating and engaging in the relationship, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why content and feelings come together in our practices and in the repetition of what we do. Why do we come together on Sunday? Remember from last week? Called, gathered, blessed, sent. That's the rhythm of our lives, not just on Sunday, but every day. And we need to continue to embrace practices that keep us in that rhythm. Because that is our protection against false teaching, and that is our reception to what God is saying and doing in our lives. If we remain theologically naive, and many of us, oh, I'm just not a smart person, I'll leave the theology things to the experts. If we continue to stay biblically illiterate, oh, 
I just don't know how to read the Bible. It's just too hard. And again, I'm going to push back on both of these. If the desire is there, it's amazing what you can do. There are harder books that you have read in your life than the Bible. There are more intricate things you've come to understand. I look around and there's brilliance in this room with some of the fields you're in. And if you can do those things, if God can give you that capability, trust me, you can embrace theology. You can read scripture. If we remain theologically naive, if we stay biblically illiterate, if we shy away from the spirit, yes, I acknowledge there's a Holy Spirit, but I would just prefer if the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with me. <laughs> Sorry, doesn't work like that. If we're theologically naive, if we're biblically illiterate, if we shy away from the Spirit, what we're doing is we're inevitably going to reduce the size of the faith we have been given. We're going to make the good news we have received smaller. And beloved, that is when we become vulnerable to false teaching. Because we make the gospel into a gospel of the lowest possible common denominator. We make the gospel into a vague reference to a higher power, a God in whom we trust. And it is so much more than that. We turn the gospel into Jesus as a generic idea or a good example among many. And it is, he is so much more than that. Two quick examples, just for the sake of, of practice. We'll play a little game of true or false, okay? Two quick examples of statements I've encountered within the church. So true or false, here's a statement. My experience is my truth. True or false? I won't ask you if you're telling me what I want to hear. My experience is my truth. False. My experience doesn't define what is true. The truth of Jesus Christ shapes and informs our experience. And as Jesus shapes what's happening in my life, it's either good experience, I'm in flowing along with the way that the kingdom, what the kingdom is about, how the spirit is moving, how Jesus intends me to work in my life, or I'm bumping up against the reality of the kingdom, the person of Jesus Christ. One more, true or false? The gospel is true because it works for me. The gospel is true because it works for me. I'll continue on what the way this was said to me. The gospel is true because it works for me. Going to church, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to church because it's helped my family. I believe in Jesus and I'm a part of the community of faith because it's given me a better self-image. Now, I'm not negating those, those, those realities, that those things happen, but the gospel isn't true because it seems to work for us. The gospel always works because it's true. See, this is very subtle, but it's very significant. If, if we evaluate the gospel, if we evaluate our life based upon what we're doing, then there's no space for understanding our life through what God is doing. If we defend the faith on its practicality alone, we find ourselves in a slippery slope. We find ourselves where Jesus is only Jesus and the gospel is only true if it fits with my preferences, if it fits with my ideas, if it fits with my feelings. We need to understand that this truth is not about whether it works for us. It's not about whether it's our experience. 
And this is where, again, we need to understand and grow in what we believe and why we believe it, why it matters, what doesn't matter, what is about Jesus and what isn't. Because Peter stresses false teaching can lead us, leave us worse off than we were at the beginning. He writes this at the tail end of this chapter. It can leave us worse off than we were at the beginning. So much so, Peter writes, false teaching can leave us where it would have been better not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn our backs on it. In other words, God holds us accountable for what we have been given. You ever noticed that when you're um, prescribed antibiotics, the pharmacist tells you to take all the pills, right? If you, if you have 10 pills, then you're supposed to take all 10, right? Even if your symptoms, all of your symptoms disappear after taking only five. Why? Because if you don't take all the antibiotic, even though the infection seems to be gone, it's really not and it will come back with a vengeance. And then your condition will be worse off than it was at the beginning. You see where Peter's going here? What Peter is getting at is we consistently, repeatedly engage this relationship we have in Jesus. We submit to Christ through worship and prayer, not to earn anything, but because this is the means by which God continues to work in us, builds that relationship in us. He works upon us whether we do it or not, but again, we our life will be less bumpy if we engage the relationship because it's consistently, repeatedly engaging in this relationship, submitting to Christ through worship and prayer, yielding to the correction and empowerment of the word and spirit in community that we grow that our discernment, our sensitivity, our maturity comes about. And it's, again, not about what we do, but by yielding to what God does in us when we turn to him, when we look to him. Ignorance is not an excuse. You all need to hear that this morning. Peter, if you doubt this, read what Peter wrote. Ignorance is not an excuse. You can't sit here and deny what God has given us. And if you do that, you're putting yourself in a dangerous place that God still can work through. And that's where I want to say ignorance is not an excuse, but the gospel here that Peter gives us is ignorance is not an excuse, but we don't have to be afraid either. We just have to be mindful. We need to pay attention and to engage the relationship that by dying to ourselves, we need to let Jesus crucify the lies in our lives so that he can resurrect the truth of the gospel in its place. Back to patterns and rhythms. Why every time that we get together do we have a prayer of confession and assurance of forgiveness? This is a beautiful way of understanding why. Because even though we are in Christ, those falsehoods, those lies have a way of building up again around us or in us. And when we confess before God, we're basically laying ourselves before God. So if you can picture it, God is crucifying the lies that are present in our lives and in its place is resurrecting once again the truth of the gospel. We need to trust and look to Christ. Trusting and looking to God in a world filled with truth and lies is important because some of us read a chapter like this that Peter wrote and we get really disturbed by what Peter shares with us. Some of us get really fired up. We're, we, we resonate with this. We look around and we see all these cults and false religions and we see these cults and false religions flourishing in the world and it brings us to great confusion. We wonder what exactly is God doing when he lets false teaching deceive so many people? And sometimes in our bewilderment, we can convince ourselves Jesus needs our help. We need to defend God against all incorrect and faulty teaching. But we need to be clear. What Peter, 
The false teaching Peter is referring to is not every point of disagreement or difference in the body of Christ. The gospel allows for diversity among believers on certain issues and practices. In Peter's own time, there was a difference of understanding of practice of eating meat sacrificed to idols or not. We have to be resist, resist what I'm saying in our sensitivity to false teaching to not go so, to so strong the other way where we become more narrow or exclusive than the gospel itself. There is a distinction between the essentials of the faith and the rest of our beliefs and practices as the church. And these essentials of the faith, if you wonder what they are, they're outlined by God in his word and underscored by the spirit and preserved for us in our creeds. This is why we say creeds in church. Because for the first 600 years of the church's existence, the community of faith, they wrestled through. And times haven't changed all that much of what are the essentials, the ones that we just talked about, the truths about Jesus Christ, and what are the things where we can agree to disagree. That's why we say the creeds in church, so we can remember this is what's most certainly true. My friends, we don't all have to read the same Bible translation. We don't have to all agree on the mode of baptism. We don't all have to share the same views about the sequence of events at end times. Peter isn't calling us, in other words, out on a heresy hunt where we're so sensitive to every nuance or, or of expression in the Christian faith that we oust and cut off people from the body on the basis of subtle, subtle theological differences. I used this in the last service. I'll use it again. I may have used this before in a sermon, so I apologize. My grandparents um, fell in love. They got married. But when they got married way back when, my grandmother is a Catholic. My grandfather was a Protestant. And when they wanted to get married, both the Protestant and the Catholic Church at first refused to marry them. In fact, told them they should not get married because she was a Catholic and he was a Protestant. And they said, we're Christians, we're followers of Christ. I mean, we, but don't get me wrong, we appreciate this, but that's what matters. No, it doesn't. You can't get married. At the end of the day, in persisting to get married, the Protestant church said no, the Catholic church finally married my grandparents, but you know where they got married? In the narthex. My grandfather grew up Protestant. He didn't have any, he had great appreciation for his Protestant heritage, but at the end of the day, as I said before, he saw himself as a Christian and wanted to worship with my grandmother. But at the end of the day, he didn't go to church for years after that because he felt like the church had basically said, you're not welcome. And I can go back in time, and maybe some of us are still living it, where we would say, well, they had really good reasons why they said that. They're not essential. They're not grounded in Christ. My friends, we gotta be real careful when we hear this. That's what makes me nervous about preaching this, that we don't go the other way. Because this kind of unbiblical intolerance has damaged not only our witness to Christ and his kingdom, it has seriously wounded and unnecessarily crippled many of God's children in the journey of faith. We are not self-appointed guardians of truth. Our holiness is not measured by how small we draw the circle of fellowship, of how many we exclude from the body. I say this a lot, but it's true. Do, do yourself a favor. Relieve yourself of the burden that God needs your help to defend him. He's done a good job for thousands of years. And Peter evokes this, that we don't need to, need to be discouraged at the presence of false teaching, he writes, because God is in control. Peter gives us various biblical examples of God revealing lies and reconciling false practices in the past as a way of assuring us God will continue to do so in the future. God is watching God is working. The Lord's allowance of something is not the same as the Lord's affirmation of that thing. 
And we need to hear that on both sides. Those of us who think, well, since God's not saying anything, it must be okay to do it, wrong. And for those of us who say, well, God's allowing it to happen, so we gotta do something about it, wrong. God is the one who will reconcile all things. If you're still concerned, hot and bothered on Super Bowl Sunday, let me tell you what the answer is. The best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. If you want to stand up against the falsehood, the lies that are out there, you stand up for what is true by living the truth, by living rightly. You reflect the truth in the midst of the lies by loving unconditionally and forgiving repeatedly, not by pointing fingers, not by undercutting, not by turning your back on your brothers and sisters. Because here's one more truth about Jesus that matters that we need to remember. The truth that Jesus will return to judge the world. And when that day comes, all false teaching, every rejection, every rebellion, mockery against God and his creation will be exposed and given what it is due. And Peter describes it quoting Proverbs as dogs will go back to their vomit and pigs will go back to their mud. And at the same time, the truth will be revealed as the sheep of the great shepherd are redeemed, as those who were enslaved, abused, and persecuted because they dared to love Jesus by loving like Jesus in sacrifice and service to their family, their friends, their neighbors, their enemies, and yes, even strangers will finally come home. It's not uncommon for us to speak about our walk as our spiritual journey. Our walk or way is often symbolic of the decisions we make of our entire lifestyle. And this is Peter's focus as he is about to reach the end of his walk, as he is about to die and finally come home. Peter believed it was worth it. It was necessary for all believers from time to time to consider their walk, where they're going, how they're going, at it, with whom they're walking, and where it all leads Beloved, Peter is telling us to stop and refocus, to consider our walk. Are we living the truth? Or are we believing the lies? When's the last time you even asked yourself what you believe? Not to mention why you believe it. Do we even know? Are we growing in our discernment, in our sensitivity to be able to recognize the wrong ways, the counterfeit gods, the false gospels we're exposed to all the time 